Well, it's nice to know that you guys can sing as a unit even though you're not dressed alike today. <laughs> Often wondered. Now we know. A reporter in San Bernardino, California, arranged for a man to lie in the gutter of a busy street. Hundreds of people passed him by. Not one of them ever stopped to show him any sympathy or any compassion or to offer any type of help. A few years ago, newspapers across the country reported of an event that took place in New York where a man stalked a woman, finally caught up with her, and then brutally attacked her and stabbed her several times while 32 people watched. Not one of them did anything to come to her assistance. And on top of that, not even one of 32 people would pick up a telephone and call the police or dial 911. In Detroit, two teenagers were walking down the street and they found a woman that was slumped over in a phone booth, apparently the victim of a heart attack. They picked her up, they carried her to the nearest house. They knocked on the door, the person looked out the window and said, get off of my porch. Oh, and by the way, take her with you. In Kentucky, a doctor was driving down the road. He was on his way to visit a patient. I guess they still do house calls there. And uh, uh, as he was approaching the home of the, of the patient he was going to visit, there was an automobile accident. He stopped to help out. He helped one of the vic victims of the automobile accident, took care of him. Several months later, he was subpoenaed and served some papers. He was being sued by the victim that he helped. You know, you read and you hear about things like that, and I ask the question, is it possible to be a good Samaritan today? Or have we gotten to the point in our litigious society where we're going to somehow or another harden our hearts to the needs of other people, to protect ourselves from being sued or to protect ourselves from being harmed by someone else? Have we gotten to that point where we've gotten so callous toward one another that we're not available to help out? If I've learned anything, and I'm a pretty thick-headed guy, and I'll admit, if I've learned anything, it's this one thing, and that is this. People need people. Doesn't get any simpler than that, nor does it get any profound than that. People need people. And the moment that you and I believe that we don't need other people, or that other people don't need us, is that moment in time where the joy has been stolen from our lives. The moment that you believe you don't need other people or that other people don't need you is the moment that joy is stolen from our lives. Listen to me carefully. Self-reliance or self-sufficiency is a joy bandit. Self-reliance is a joy bandit. I don't know how else to put it, but when you think that you are on your own and that you don't need anybody else in this world, that is a joy bandit. And I don't know what it's going to take because, you know, the presence of people is essential. Caring people, helpful people, like we talked about last week, non-complaining people, encouraging people, interesting people, friendly people, thoughtful people, even people that are different. Take the grind out of life. We need each other. People need people. And you know what's amazing to me? Every time I'm tempted to think that I don't need someone else, something happens in my life that I need someone. It's almost as God's, you know, a little, it's his way of, it's a little joke that God has. I don't really need anybody. Then boom, an obstacle is thrown before me that I can't get over on my own. I can't get around on my own. I need other people. People need people. 
I love the story that I heard recently about passengers on a jetliner. I think you'll appreciate it. They were relaxing their seats for a long flight. The voice over the loudspeaker had just announced that the aircraft had reached its cruising altitude, and the passengers were free to roam and unfasten their seatbelts, roam about the cabin. And then the voice continued saying this. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to announce that you're flying on the maiden voyage of one of our brand new fully automated jetliners. These new jetliners are the pride, pride of our fleet and have no need for pilot, co-pilot, or navigator. All human error has been eliminated. You needn't be alarmed as everything from cabin pressure to speed and altitude is completely controlled by our computer. We're excited about the world's first fully automated airplane and we hope you are too. So just sit back and relax and remember, nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. You know, you hear something like that, and I just, I think it's funny. Because in spite of our high-tech world of efficient procedures, people remain the essential ingredient of life. People remain the essential ingredient of life. And when we forget that, here's what usually begins to happen. We start treating people like inconveniences instead of assets which is what we really are. Let me tell you a true story. Robert Henry is a professional speaker. He was out one night and he encountered this one evening when he went to a large discount department store to buy a new set of binoculars. Says he walked up to the appropriate counter. He noticed that the only, he was the only customer in the store. He walked up to the counter and there were two salespeople that were working there. One of them was so busy on the phone talking about the evening's events and things that were gonna take place that night. As she saw him walk up, he, she turned around to continue her conversation. So he looked down at the end of the counter and there was another gal that was down there and she was putting away inventory and he stood there for a few minutes and the gal stayed on the phone so he walked down to her and he said, excuse me. And she kind of looked up and went back to putting things on the shelf. She said, he said, excuse me, can you help me please? And she looked up at him as she was kneeling there and said, do you have a number? He said, do I have a number? I'm the only person in the store. She said, I'm sorry, sir, but we can't serve you unless you have a number. So it was obvious at that point that she cared more about procedures and policies than she did about helping the customer. So he walked back up to the other end of the counter. He went to one of those take a number machines. He pulled the number out, and he got number 38. So he went over to her again and says, now can you help me? I have a number. So she went over to the machine that she worked off of previously and saw that the last customer that she waited on was number 34. So she said, 35? 35, 36, 36, no, 37, 37, she says, 38, he goes, I'm number 38, she goes, may I help you, sir, and he said, no, and he turned and walked out the store, <laughs> I love it. It's like, what in the world have we come to? I mean, you know what, you think that story is ridiculous, but you know what, it's happened to me. The same type of thing, and it's probably happened to you. It's amazing to me. We've got a, a large supplier of ours who's gone on this big corporate uh, phone system for efficiency. Have you ever got lost in the twilight zone of a phone system that was invented for efficiency to better serve human beings? Have you ever longed any more in your life for some incompetent person? Any incompetent person. So I dial this machine and I get hooked up in this and we're going from one menu to another menu to another menu and you have to jot down why you called because you'll forget. <laughs> and by the time we get to all of it, 
the machine's going and someone finally answers the phone because it said if you would like to speak to a human being, you know, push this button, you know, H for human. Then you got to look and see what H is, you know, well, just give me a number. But, but we go and, and finally someone picks up the phone and, and it was someone that I knew and he starts to talk and I start to talk and the machine keeps going. And it goes on with this long message and he's going, um, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Are you there? Yeah, okay. Hey, well, you know what? Can you do me a big favor? Can you hang out the phone and call me? Please. Please. Efficiency. Procedures and policies. Let me tell you something. Without human beings, there's no need for that answering system. Who's going to call? Who's going to talk to it? Think about this. This is simple stuff, but it's really not that simple. Without people, there's no need for those types of procedures and policies. Businesses lose sight of it. Customers call it as if, you know, they're a problem instead of an asset. Hey, they're valuable. That's why you're in business. I had one lady who used to work for us one time, and she was kind of getting older, and she was getting a little more crotchety as she got older. And not because she was getting older, and not because she was a woman, and I'm really digging myself in a deep old hole here. <laughs> I had no idea. I think it was because she was looking more and more like her husband as she got older. But, but the point was, you, you know, you, you, go, you go in there and, you, and you'd want her to do something for you. And she'd have to, you'd put the stuff in the basket. And, and you put, you know, she was handling receivables or payables or something. And you'd put stuff in the basket and she'd go like this. When you walk in, you put it in and she'd go, <laughs> and she, After a while, finally I said, you realize that when that basket is empty and nobody else walks in and puts anything in that basket, you think you're still going to be here getting paid? Every time somebody walks in, you say, bless you, bless you for putting stuff in this basket. Because if that basket's empty, I got a feeling they don't need her no more. Just a thought. Think about it. Point is this. Without people, who cares how efficient an airline is? Who cares whether you've got some efficient phone system? Who cares what business you're in if people aren't there to somehow or other support it? You know what a church is without people? It's just a building. And we lose sight of that when we come up with policies and procedures and regulations, all designed to help people, mind you, all with good intentions, but typically we lose sight of the person after we invent the policies and procedures. If we're not helping people by policies and procedures, I say change them. Change them. Get away, get away from them altogether. Throw them all away if they're not helping people they're designed to help. And get rid of them. I like this piece. It says, how important are you? Well, more than you think. A rooster minus a hen equals no baby chicks. Kellogg minus a farmer equals no cornflakes. <laughs> if the nail factory closes, what good is the hammer factory? Paderewski's genius wouldn't have amounted to much if the piano tuner didn't show up. A cracker maker will do better if there's a cheese maker. The most skillful surgeon needs the ambulance driver who delivers the patient. And just as Rogers needed Hammerstein, you need someone and someone needs you. I like that. Since none of us are these self-efficient, self-sufficient, self-reliant people that we think that we are, I say it's time that we just admit to one another we need each other. Just lay all the baloney aside and just admit I need you and you need me. If you weren't here, I guarantee you I wouldn't be coming here doing what I'm doing. It would be really silly 
because I already know what I want to say, and I already know because I already did it, and it's all done, but I don't really need to be here if you're not going to be here to listen. Right? As simple as it gets. And Jim doesn't need to be up there pulling those power moves with the microphone thing. <laughs> you know, he may be short, but he's powerful. <laughs> we're important to each other. But you know what? As important as we are to each other, listen to this, because this is critical in what we're going to discuss. As important as we are to each other, we're important even more so to God. This is what blows me away. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even begin to comprehend it or understand it. But as important as we are to each other, we are even more important to God. Because when God created everything, it was only when he created man that he imparted his image and his likeness. He didn't do it to the birds and the animals and the plants and the flowers or anything else that he made. God imparted to human beings his image and his likeness. And it was for people that God sent his son into this world to die for our sins so that we could be made right by him by believing in him. It was for people that Jesus one day will come again. Not for birds, not for your dog, not for trees, not for anything else, not for whales, not for baby seals, not for all the things that we get so excited about in life. And we, and we let people lay in the gutters of streets so we can save a baby seal. Not That's not important, but I think our priorities get a little bit confused sometimes. But the point of the matter is this. It's for people that Jesus will come again. Now you say, but didn't God just do everything on his own? Isn't he all-powerful, all-sufficient? Does he really need you? Does he really need me? And the answer is absolutely not. God doesn't need me, and he doesn't need you. And that's what even makes it even more confusing to me, the fact that God's plan is basically this. God plus people equal accomplishment. God plus people equal accomplishment. God uses people. And he wants to use us for his purposes and for his glory. And he wants us to be part of his plan. And, and, and we're important to him. As, as crazy as that sounds to some of us, we're important to God. I like the story that I heard of a pastor who had saved up enough money to finally buy a piece of property. And he bought this property. It was like 11 acres. And on the middle of the property was this old farmhouse. And it was old rundown. It was dilapidated. You know, it was falling apart. And all throughout there were tree stumps. And there was old rusty machinery. And the place was a mess. But he had saved up enough money because it wasn't expensive. He bought this place. And over a number of years, every vacation that he had and the weekends and free time that he had and, and any opportunity he had, he'd go and he'd work on this piece of property. He'd haul away all the old junk and the old stumps and he'd plant new trees and he cleaned it up and he got start working on the farmhouse and he got that all cleaned up and finally put in new windows and new doors and put a new roof on it. Man, just fix this place up. And it took years for him to do it. And one of his neighbor farmers had watched this process for 12 years. And he came over to him one day and he looked at him and he said, Well, preacher, it looks like you and the Lord have done a pretty fine job on your place here. And the preacher had just been working out there and he wiped the sweat off his brow and he said, Yeah, we've done a great job. But let me remind you, don't forget what this place was like when the Lord had it on his own. <laughs> and he wasn't being smart, but he was making a point. And the point is that God chooses to use people. And so as I think of all of these things, it's critical that we understand that, you know what, people need people. I saw a sign recently, and I kind of liked it, and it said, um, it said, remember what happened to the banana after it left the bunch? It got skinned. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, 19 through 30. We're going to take a look at the joy of special friends. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 19. 
In Philippians 2, starting with verse 19, Paul writes, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. But you, know of, you, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child who was serving his father. Therefore I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. It says, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphrodites, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. It says, therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete was deficient in your service to me. In this particular passage, we see two friends that Paul mentions. You know, I think some of us picture Paul and we think, here's this guy, he was self-sufficient, he was kind of a lone ranger, he didn't really need anybody else, he was a rugged individualist, and the truth be known, he needed friends. And he had some special friends in his life that caused him to have more joy in his life, and they made his joy complete. And as we look at who these friends are, he identifies two of them. First, he says, there's my, my son. He, he identifies him as a son in the faith. His name is Timothy. And then he says, there's my brother or fellow worker, and his name is Epaphrodites. So this section, as we look at this letter, will be bro broken into two parts. So first of all, we see, number one, that Paul says, hey, you know what? I, just wanna, I want you to know about some friends of mine who made my life more joyful, who really made my joy complete, people that were important, they were an asset to me. You know, you stop and think about Paul for a moment, and I know there were times when he was sick, he was hurting, he was beat on, the, on occasions, he was left for dead. There were times where he needed a doctor. And it's a good thing Dr. Luke was with him. He needed a doctor, and Dr. Luke was there. There were times where he was worn out, and he was tired, and he could hardly go on, and he needed Paul, and he needed, I mean, he needed Silas, and he needed Barnabas to be with him. There were other times where he couldn't even write the letters that we read today. He had somebody transcribe and write them for him. And he wasn't able to do that. And there are other times, like now, in this particular letter, where he's in prison, and he wants to send a letter to a church, and he can't go himself because he's shackled and he can't leave. So he needed someone to deliver the message. And that's where Timothy comes in, and Epaphrodites. And so as we look at this, he gives us a pre, a kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of who these friends are. And also, as we take a look at this, we'll also see some qualities that we can see as far as a friend is concerned. And in this particular section, first section, we're going to look at three qualities of a special friend. But before we do that, let me give you a little quick history of the, who this person Timothy is. Timothy, according to Acts 16, verses 1 through 3, was a young man who was uh, born and raised in either Lystra or Derby, which was in the southern portion of, of uh, Asia Minor, which today is known, be known as Turkey. He lived in Turkey. He was a child of a mixed marriage. His mother was Jewish. Her name was Eunice. Her father was a Greek, and we don't know what his name was. But we know that this Jewish heritage had not, not influenced him very much because it wasn't until he was a young man later in life that he was circumcised. So we know that the Greek influence was greater at that point than the Jewish influence. We know that his mother and his grandmother were, were solid people that, that believed in the Lord. They trusted in him. They had a background that was such that they were sensitive to spiritual things. 
We know according to 2 Timothy 1, 5, for example, Paul wrote, For I am mindful of this sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. So there was some spiritual heritage there on the maternal side. And, and, and as we go through this, we begin to realize, too, that Paul is the one who first introduced them to the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4.17, he says that Timothy was my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And that later on, when he finally joined Luke and Paul and traveled with him, they became close companions and that they remained friends for the rest of their life. So in this particular section, we're going to learn about who this person Timothy is. And if you remember from the beginning of our study, Timothy's with him as he writes this letter, may even be writing it for him, and, for, and, and, and certainly was going to deliver it if he couldn't get it delivered sooner by someone else. So anyway, here's some qualities of a friend that I think are critical for every one of us. We need to look at these and say, and kind of make this a self-test. Say, you know what, do I have a friend in my life who, who has these types of qualities? And more importantly, if you don't have a friend in someone's life who's like that, are you that type of friend to other people? Because I can't control what others are like. I can't control the qualities that they'll have, but I can control the qualities to some degree or cultivate the qualities that I'll have in my own life. So as we take a look at these things, we begin to understand who this person Timothy was. And in verses 19 through 24, we see who he is. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. You know what's amazing to me? Talk about a guy who considered others more important than himself. We've got to continually remind ourselves that this guy is in prison, shackled to a guard 24 hours a day. He's, being, he's awaiting trial. He may be executed for his faith. And here he is saying to the people back at Philippi, hey, you know what? I want to hear that you're doing okay so that I'll be doing okay too. What in the world is this guy thinking? I'll tell you what he has. He has the mind of Christ that we talked about. The mind, the humble mind that puts other persons more important than himself. He's thinking, man, you know what? The thing that's making prison hard for me is I'm worrying about you. I'm not concerned about me. I know God's in control of all things, but I just want to hear back that you're doing okay too. I love that. But this is what he says about the qualities of this friend that he has. Three things. Number one, he says he has a kindred spirit. I like that. For I have no one else of kindred spirit. The term that he uses are two terms, and they mean same soul. It's the only time in all the New Testament that this word is used, a kindred spirit. He's saying about Timothy, you know what, you know what, what I like about this friend of mine? He's, he's just like me, and I'm just like him, and we think alike, and we see things alike, and we have the same vantage point and pers perspective of things. And, and Paul was saying, you know, if I sent this guy to check out something, it would be as if I went there myself. I am so fully confident that we view life the same, that whatever report he comes back with, I don't even have to go see for myself, I don't have to check it out for myself, I just know that we're just so in tune with one another. It was like the soul of Jonathan being knit to the soul of David. I mean, they were like blood brothers, man. I mean, they understood where each other was coming from. Man, what a joy. I'll tell you what, I have, in my life, I have on occasions to have maybe a handful of people that have come at different times in my life that God has brought into my life who I can say had a kindred spirit. Men that God brought into my life, and man, I mean, we saw things alike. We, we felt the same thing. We could sense the same thing. We had the same perspective on life. And you know what? When you have a friend like this, there's nothing forced about this relationship at all. I mean, you can just let your hair hang down and not worry about anything because both of you are exactly the same in so many ways. 
I'll tell you what, when you have a relationship like that, I'll guarantee you that it will increase the joy in your life. Just as a little side note, too, what I thought was interesting um, is that this, this group of people, when they started out, we call this class Kindred Fellowship. And the reason for it was very simple, because there was a group of people who were like-minded of the things of God. They loved God, they loved His Son, they loved the Word of God, they loved each other, and also, importantly, they loved strangers. They loved people who weren't part of the group. And one of the things that happens in church groups as well as any other group is that you can get pretty clicky about the fact that, you know what, we're in and you're out. We're, we're here and you're new. And we don't know yet if we're going to let you into this group or not. The thing that I've always stressed and has been stressed in this group of people and I hope never quits is that kindred spirit that says, you know what, hey, everybody is welcome. We don't care if you're just coming to check it out. We don't care if you believe everything that we believe. We don't care if you want to argue all the time. And, and I don't mean in the middle when I'm talking, but I mean outside that. You, you can tell me what you want to tell me, and I'm open to listen, and we're all open to listen. But the point of the matter is, is that we want to encourage people to feel a freedom to come and to be part, even though they may still be checking things out. And I'll tell you what. See, that's where you throw policies and procedures and rules and regulations out the window because people are more important than all of that. And that's what he had. He had a kindred spirit. And he also said this. The second thing he had was a genuine concern for others. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit, no one else who sees things like I do, no one else feels the way that I do, no one else understands the things that I do. He says, not, not like he does. And I don't have anyone else who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I like that. A genuine, listen to me, a genuine concern for the welfare of other people. Not putting on some phony dog and pony show. Not saying, I care about people if you're watching me to see whether I care about people. Not walking down the street and seeing a person lying in the gutter and thinking to yourself, is this a test? Is there a camera somewhere? I better go and pick this person up because I want to make sure that, you know, somebody will come over and see me if I'm on camera or if this is a test or if this is a trick or whatever. No, a genuine concern for people is I'm going to go over and I'm going to help this person lying in the gutter, whether there's a camera, whether there's a reporter, whether there's a test, whatever it is, because I want to do what's right because I have a concern for people. And you, I don't know how you teach that other than to lead an example for other people to see. To make your life so visible that you're concerned about other people, that other people see you concerned about other people, and they scratch their head and say, I don't understand. To have a couple like we did when we watched these children last week, four years old and 13 months old, to stay with you for 10 days, you have got to have a genuine concern for people. And they say, how in the world can we repay you? You don't have enough money. <laughs> you can't. It's impossible. <laughs> and, and like two days before they came home, they said, oh, we're so exhausted. We're so exhausted. We've been bike riding up Haleakala, and we've gone snorkeling, we've gone jet skiing, we've gone water. We're so tired. I said, let me give you some advice. Rest the next two days. <laughs> don't come back tired. We had a great time. Why? Just because we're concerned for other people. I said, man, why do you do that? Because my wife got us into it. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. But I helped out. A genuine concern for the welfare of others. Well, I'll tell you what. We all need more of that. 
See, what he said about Timothy was, here's a guy that cares about people. He cares about people. Could he have sent anybody else back there? Absolutely. Were there any other Christians in Rome? Absolutely. If you read the book of Romans, you'll see at the end of it, he identifies 26 people that were all believers in Rome that became part of his intimate core friends, so to speak, or people that he knew. He could have sent any one of them back there, but you know what? None of them wanted to go. None of them wanted to go. Only Timothy said, hey, I'll do whatever I have to do. Because if you're concerned about their welfare and you're concerned that you being in prison is going to be a downer to them, then I'll go back and tell them everything's okay. I like that. A genuine concern for other people. Man, you know what? We need more of that. We need more of that. And you know what's interesting to me? I think that we need to recognize that, you know what? God changes people. God changes people. But God uses us to the instruments of change in their life. God uses us to cause growth in the lives of others. God uses our example so others can see what it's like to have a genuine concern for other people. Whether you understand that or not, that's just true. That's just the way it is. And some of us have no joy in our life because we've never seen God use us to affect in a positive way the lives of people around us. Tell you what, Paul was smiling in prison because he knew God used him not to change a person's life, but to cause growth in a person's life. And he smiled me a joy because of it. Number three, the third quality is this, a servant's heart. A servant's heart. You know, it's amazing to me. You read through this and you go, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know of his proven worth, speaking of Timothy again, he says that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. Listen to this. He says, like a child serving his father. Now, I want you to understand something here. Timothy is a grown man. How can a grown man serve another grown man? You've got to have a servant's heart. That's all. You've got to lay aside your pride, lay aside all this, your rights, and all the stuff that you think you deserve, and the position that you are in life. If you're going to serve another person, you lay aside all of that, and you have a servant's heart. That's what a true friend is all about. A person with a kindred spirit that sees things alike. Man, you just click. Everything gets along just well. You don't even have to force it. Nothing is contrived. It's all there. It's just, oh man, it's, it's wonderful. The person has a genuine concern for you and, and, and for your needs. And also you have a concern for them and their needs. And also a servant's heart that lays all the power trip aside. I like the story I heard about a, about a, a woman who was a waitress. A new factory owner walks into a restaurant for a quick lunch. The menu featured some blue plate lunch special and made it clear, absolutely no substitutions or additions. So this guy sat there and he ate his meal and the meal was tasty. He got the point of bread, piece of bread where he needed another pat of butter. And he called the waitress over and said, can I have another pat of butter? And she said, no substitutes or additions. He said, but I just want another pat of butter. And she said, no substitutes or additions. It says it clearly right here on the menu. And then he went on. You know who I am? You see that factory across the street? Do you know how many people I employ there that work there that come here and eat at this restaurant? Do you know if I told them not to come over here, we could shut this place down? Do you know who I am? She said, I don't know who you are, but I know who I am. And I'm the one that determines whether you're going to get another pat of butter. 
You know, we got this power trip. It's amazing, and sometimes it's funny like that, but other times it's ugly. See, Timothy wasn't on a power trip. Paul didn't worry if I sent him somewhere that he's going to show up and say, Hey, I'm here, representing Paul. I'm going to kick a little booty around here if you don't straighten up. He didn't say any of that. He knew he had a servant's heart. He knew that when he went there, he represented him, and he wouldn't get off on this power trip. Man, you know, some of us need to understand something. I don't care what position you are in life, but you need to recognize one thing and never lose sight of it. You are a servant of God to do His will for His glory. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care what position you're in. I don't care whether you own a company or you work for someone or if you're in management. I don't care whether you're the, the pastor of a hugely large church. It doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States. I don't care who you are. You're nothing compared to who God is. And the only reason you're where you're at is because he's allowed you to be there. Think about it. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of God and he directs it any way that he wishes. He raises one up and he'll take one down. He'll put another in your place. He is not limited by you and your abilities or what you think you are. He is all-sufficient. He is all-knowledgeable. He is in all control. And you just ought to thank God he put you where he is and just praise him for it. Get off the power trip. Three qualities, a special friend. Now, Epaphrodite is a little different. And we'll look at him real quickly because, see, Paul doesn't know him as well from a personal standpoint, but he knows what he does. And he goes on and he says, you know, I'm hoping to send Timothy to you. <clears throat> That's my first plan. I want to send Timothy. But if he can't go, then I'm going to send Epaphrodites back right away. He says, I thought it was necessary to send to you Epaphrodites, which means that Epaphrodites is the guy who ultimately delivers the letter. You follow me? He wanted to send Timothy, but he didn't send Timothy. He sent Epaphrodites because Epaphrodites could go quick. So he sent him with this letter that we're reading. He says, now Epaphrodites is my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. He was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Man, I love this. It almost gags me to some point. But these guys, everyone was worrying about what everybody else thought. Everyone was more concerned about the, the interest of others than their own interest. You see what Paul is saying? He goes, hey, I've got to hear that you're doing okay because, man, it'll, make, it'll increase my joy to know you're doing okay. Epaphrodites goes to Paul with money while he's in prison from this church at Philippi. He gets an illness, a disease. He gets sick. He almost dies. The people back at Philippi heard that Epaphrodites was sick and was going to die. Now they're all concerned about him. Epaphrodites hears that they're concerned about him because he almost died. He didn't die, so now he's okay. Now he needs to go back to tell him he's okay. Can you give me a break? I mean, these people are more concerned about one another than their own needs. Man, it's pictured over and over again. So he goes back to him and says, hey, I'm okay. And Paul says, let me tell you something. He's my fellow brother. He's a fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He's a fellow servant. And he goes on and he says, that, you know what? And he's a minister to my needs, for indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on, only on him, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Little side note here. I'm reading through this and I'm thinking, man, you know what? God knows our breaking point. God knows our breaking point. God knows when we don't any more than what we've been dished out. God knows when your plate's full. And you would see what Paul said? If Epaphrodites would have died, man, it would have just killed me too. But God knew it, and he, he, he healed him, and, and I didn't have any more than I can handle. 
I'm going to tell you something. I am encouraged by this because I don't care what you're going through in life. It means this. No matter what you're going through, God knows that you can handle it in his strength. God knows that you can handle it in his strength. Not on your own. In his strength. And with people that he'll bring into your life to help you get through it. That's just a side note. Therefore, I eagerly send him in order that you may see him again, that you may rejoice and be less concerned about you. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. You know, this man, Epaphrodites, was a risk taker. I mean, you know, you stop and think about this for a moment. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a person in your life who would take a risk for you? Who would gamble his own life for you? And that you'd be willing to do the same. Who would step out in a crowd for you. Not worrying about what anybody else says. Not worried about what anybody else thinks. But as such a true friend that they'd step up the plate for you. Doesn't happen very often in life, does it? Talked to a friend the other night who said he was going into a meeting. And his friend said to him, hey man, I'm there for you. Halfway through the meeting when the heat was raised and things started to get a little ugly. He turned on him just like that. Why is that? Because he wasn't a true friend. Because he didn't have the qualities that we need to have for one another. The qualities that say, you know what? I'm not going to turn on you in the heat of the battle. That's when you can count on me most. I'm not going to run from you when you're going through a difficult time. That's when you can count on me most. He was a risk taker. He was a gambler. It reminds me of a true story. Little girl, not, little girl six years old, had gotten some rare blood disease. She was sick and she was going to die. The only way that she could survive was she'd have to go through a blood transfusion, and the only person that would be eligible to give her a blood transfusion was a person who had a similar disease that had overcome the disease. And so sure enough, her brother, who was a little boy, nine years old, had gone through the same thing, had overcome this disease, and now was, a, was the, the most acceptable candidate to give blood. So the doctor went to this little boy who was nine years old and explained him the procedure of how he needed to give blood to his sister, and he said, would you be willing to do it? And the, boy, the little boy said, yeah, I'll be willing to do it. So the little boy goes into the, to the room, and sure enough, they take blood from him, and they give the sister the transfusion, and the little boy's laying in there in the recovery room, and the doctor goes in, and he says, how are you doing? And the little boy looked at him, and he said, when am I going to die? And the doctor said, I'm sorry. He said, well, when am I going to die? And it was at that moment that the doctor realized that this little boy didn't understand fully what he was doing. But he thought that his sister needed a blood transfusion and that they were going to take all of his blood and give it to her and that he was going to die. He said, you're not going to die. He said, let me ask you something. The doctor said, can, can I ask you a question? If you knew that you were going to die by giving your sister your blood, why in the world would you do that? And this is what he said. Because she needed it and because I love her. Boom. That's it. Because she needed it and because I love her. That's a friend. That's Epaphrodites. He's going to step up to the plate and he's going to be accounted as a friend of Paul's, even a man who was looked at as a criminal, a man who was going to be put on trial, a man who could be executed. And you need to understand something. In those days, a person that went to visit someone in prison was a labeled person. They were looked at just as bad as the person in jail. They were just as, as, as much a criminal as the person in jail. There were people that were risk takers in that day that said, I don't care what people think about me. I'm going there because he needs me and he needs my help. Because he needs me and because I love him. Period.
in closing, you know, I thought, well, how does this even apply to us? You know, how, how does any of this apply to us? How do we put it all together so it makes some sense? You know, and I went through this and realized, you know, there are three people that we talked about. Three people who deserve a response. Three people from this whole study, as I've looked at it, understand really clearly that we need to, that we need to respond to them. First of all, when God brings a Timothy into your life, whether it's a male or female, when God brings a Timothy into your life, he says to you, relate to that person and don't run from them. Relate to them. Don't run. If a Timothy comes into your life, relate. We have a tendency in our day and age to want to run from relationships. I don't need a relationship. I don't need any more commitment. I don't need anybody. I don't need any people in my life. And God brings people into our life at critical moments in our life when we're experiencing things that only God knows. And he brings us into that person's life and he says to you and me, relate to that person and you're going to find the greatest source of joy that God can provide outside of himself. Relate. God brought a person into my life, or actually me into his life. I, I went over to him, knocked on the door one day, and I said, you know what, I don't even know why I'm here. And you know what he told me? But I do. I said, good, let's go have lunch, and you can tell me what in the heck's going on, because I don't have a clue. And he began to share with me everything that was going on in his life. And he knew that God brought me into his life. And I'm no different than you. I'm not some special person. All that I am is available. All right, God, if that's what you want me to do, I'll go do it. I don't understand it, don't know where it's going, but I'm, uh, I'm just here for the ride. And I enjoy it. Let's go. When God brings an Epaphrodites into your life, he says, respect that person. God will bring people into your life to meet your needs, and God says, you respect them for what they're doing. You appreciate what they're doing. You thank them for what they're doing. You respect them. And the third person since we're almost, actually we're, we're halfway through with this study of choosing joy, the third person is someone I want to introduce to you again for, the, for probably the second or third time, but that person is Jesus Christ. See, when God brings Jesus into your life, when you are confronted with the claims of who he is, that he is God's only son, for God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son into this world so that you have a choice of whether you would receive him or not. When Jesus knocks on your door as the song that, that was sung today, and he's knocking, but you can, you're the only one that can open it because it's open from the inside. When he comes to your door and knocks, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and anyone that hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, and we will have fellowship one with, one with each other. See, when Jesus knocks on the door of your heart, you're the only one that can respond. And you're either going to turn and walk away or you're going to receive him for who he is. It says, for as many as receive him, to them he give the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Folks, it doesn't get any easier than this. We make it so complicated and so hard and we want to work our way to heaven and we want to do all kinds of things, but it's by grace we're saved through faith. Simple faith and trust that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life and that there's no man ever gets to the Father but through him. That's it. When Jesus knocks on the door of your life, he just says, receive me. Trust in me. Believe in me. You know, and as I thought about that and went through all of these, you know what? I, I, need, a, I need a Timothy in my life. I need someone I can relate to, someone with the same perspective, someone with the same viewpoints, people that, someone I can just get along with. 
There are times where we all need an Epaphrodites in our life. Someone that comes into our life to meet a specific need and God knows what it is and he brings you and me into that life so that we can meet that need. But let me tell you something and don't ever forget this. As much as you need Timothy, a Timothy type, and as much as we need an Epaphrodites type, there's nobody on the face of the earth that can give you and do for you that Jesus can do. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That it's at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. And I can't encourage you enough to receive him and trust in him. Because when you do that, then you've chosen joy, whether you know it or not. Because then his joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Lord, I just pray that there are those that are here or listening that have never got to the point where they truly understand how simple it is to just receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. To believe that he is all-sufficient for their sins, that if they would just trust him and believe in him, that their sin would be forgiven, that they'd enter into a relationship with God, a personal one where they would become a child of God, to those who believe in the name of Jesus. God, we just thank you for it's by grace that we're saved through faith and not of works, that it's not a matter of doing anything other than believing what Jesus did for us. And as a result, we can trust him and enter into a relationship. It says that if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away and all things become new. And God, that's only something that you have the power to do. And we just thank you and praise you for what you've done through him. God, we just also praise you for the Timothy types who come into our life that we can relate and increase the joy in our life. For the Epaphrodites types, the type that take a risk and gamble, risking their own lives and their own safety and, and, and their own material possessions and all that goes with it to meet the needs of another person. God, help us to become Timothys and Epaphrodites and help us to just thank you and trust you for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's his name. We praise you and thank you. Amen.